Hey everybody, you are listening to A Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy. I am one of your hosts, Johnny Morrison, and with us, as always, is your co-host, Christian Serge. But Johnny, you're the smart guy of the group. No, I'm, uh, I think we've done the show long enough that I can stop using that phrase altogether. I guess it's just maybe I like being the dumb guy because I get to ask those insensitive questions. I, I still feel uncomfortable referring to myself that way or you that way. So I was like, you know, just drop it all together and our guest will be the smart guy. Yes, we do have a special guest today. Thanks for listening, everybody. Typically, for the next 23 minutes or so, we have a conversation about culture, current events, and politics from both a smart and dumb point of view, or as Johnny put it, from Johnny's point of view and my point of view. <laughs> and we try to work it out empathetically, and we try to kind of take it out of the world's hands and bring it into our hands. But this week, we're going to do something different. We have a special guest with us. I first met this man over Skype about eight years ago. He had a point of view more different than I had ever experienced or witnessed before. He really exposed in me, really just the second time only in my life, my biases, prejudices, and my, I guess for lack of a better word, internal uh, whiteness. But over the last several years, he and I have run into each other a few times, once in Salt Lake City where he, through his spoken word poetry, which is awesome by the way, pretty much taught the white people in the crowd what it meant to be black. Some describe him as a staunch nonconformist with an unrelenting mission to fight evil with poetry. I see him as a leader, an artist, a musician, an author, but most importantly, a friend who has a lot to teach us about life and each other. His name is Micah Borne. Welcome to the show, Micah. Hmm. What up, y'all? Good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Micah, uh, I have been uh, dying to ask this question, and uh, forgive me on this one, this may come across as insensitive, but <laughs> people who listen to the show, they know that I have a problem with the French based on a couple experiences I had with, the, uh, with some kids uh, kicking and spitting on me and pushing me down and calling me, you know, the, the uh, F and Yank. And Johnny typically quotes French theologists and mm -hmm. philosophers. So I have to know, is your name... French. I mean, yes, but I don't have any particular uh, <laughs> like emotional connection to it. I mean, my name is a slave name, so my family is not from France, but my on both sides of my family, I'm descendants of slaves. And on my dad's side, I know they were from Louisiana area, so I'm assuming they were just French slave masters. So it's really interesting to me because when people hear my name, they're like, oh, are you French? I'm like, I mean, when you get black people with other like like English last names, no one asked them, oh, are you British? <laughs> you know, it's just like, their name is, I don't know, Jackson or Brown or whatever, you know? But mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't got a French bone in my body. So, um, but I uh, I used to have quite an affinity for certain French philosophers. I love Michel de Montaigne. Um, so uh, I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, my name is, for, my first name is uh, out of the Bible and it's Hebrew. My second name is uh, West African and my last name is French. So it's all over the place. Uh, there's actually a poem about my name in my book uh but yeah it's, it's pretty funny though but yeah it is borne a lot of people think it's born or borns but uh it's borne micah keta borne yeah i read that poem about your name and i thought mm -hmm. i gotta you know and and now mm -hmm. that i know a guy really know a guy with a french last name um <laughs> even if he isn't french i just i gotta get rid of that bias and that's yeah. one thing you've taught me um over the years so hey um <laughs> you just released a new book called Here Comes This Dreamer. Yeah. And I know that you're an author and you're so many other things. Tell us about uh, why you wrote the book and what it's about and who you wrote it for. Yeah, so it's a book of poetry. Um, 
And I've been writing poetry for about 12 years now. I've been making music for 14. But this book specifically, you know, it's dedicated to, uh, the dedication page says uh, to little, little black kids with big black dreams. And it's really me, I mean, first and foremost, speaking to a younger version of myself. You know, mm -hmm. I grew up thinking that I was dumb because I wasn't smart in the subjects that I thought you had to be smart in or good at in order mm -hmm. to be considered intelligent, right? Like math was hard for me. I failed algebra. I, I read slow, you know, uh, all, all the things that you were supposed to do, get straight A's or, you know, ace the SATs. I didn't do any of those things. And so I thought, well, if that's what it means to be smart and I don't get straight A's, and I didn't ace the standardized test, um, and I'm not good at math, then I guess I'm stupid. It was just like mm. object objectively true to me. Like, I guess I'm just dumb. Um, but you know, no one ever told me that my interest in hip hop was actually an interest in something productive. I, mm. I liked hip hop almost as a guilty pleasure because there was a lot of stereotypes around it being bad. And you know, I'm from Long Beach at the time. There was a lot of gangster rappers coming from here. And so it was like, you know, I was this church kid in love with hip hop and I'm not supposed to like that. You know, I didn't think I liked poetry because we were only exposed to a certain type of poetry. I, I didn't read mm. contemporary poets. I didn't read poets that looked like me or spoke from my world. I was reading mostly older or dead white poets from a different mm. time. And I just didn't see myself in it. I didn't understand the vocabulary. I didn't understand the narratives. Um, so anyway, but I now, like later, I ended up getting into like spoken word poetry and hip hop in college. And and it it just wakened so many things in me. And it was the mm. first time, like, I remember being at open mics, sharing these poems and people would come up to me afterwards and they're like, man, you're so smart. I love the way you think. And I was like, what? Like oh. smart, like nah, like mm. this is this is fun. Like I didn't associate it with this was like not school. This was not academic. This was just me having a good time. But it was through creative expression that I realized, man, I I am intelligent and I do have something mm. to offer the world. Um, and so I really was thinking about that. I wanted to write a book of poetry that if a you know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old black kid from Long Beach picked it up. He wouldn't be like, I'm confused. I don't understand this. You know, I wanted to write poetry for people who think they hate poetry. People like me, basically. Kids like mm. myself. Um, and show, hey, you know, what you like about rap music, mm. you actually, you like poetry. You just think they're dope rappers that they got punchlines. But what you really like is their use of alliteration and metaphor and double entendre. And, you know, saying like all of these poetic devices that rap artists are employing that you find fascinating like that's because you're intelligent and you appreciate creative expression and you appreciate poetry and wordplay and all these things so anyways uh that's what the book is is first and foremost i'm speaking to to black folk and black children and basically i'm just speaking to myself and i'm mm -hmm. talking about our experiences not just through our race but everything we experience is in some way affected by that you know whether you're talking about romance you know whether you're talking about education, um, you know, going to college, like as a black person in America, um, your, your skin color is going to affect all of these things that you're experiencing. So the, the whole title, um, here comes this dreamer. It's kind of a facetious, I guess you can say, because I, I actually hate the term dreamer. And it's not that I think there's anything wrong with being a dreamer. I consider myself a dreamer, but I hate the stereotypes of dreamers. Um, mm. When people talk about artists and dreamers, they talk about us 
like we are disconnected from reality, right? Like we have our head in the clouds, like, oh, like hmm. that's cute, but you know, you got to be more practical. Um, and yeah. uh, the reality is, I think that artists and dreamers are actually more connected to reality. Uh, they see things that maybe the dominant culture doesn't see, but often those things are truer. You know, I, I always say, you know, somebody, somebody had to look up at the moon and say, I think we can walk on that one day. And how many people laughed at them? You know, I always mm. think about Da Vinci, who 400 years before the Wright brothers took flight, he was sketching flying machines in his notebooks. And all of his contemporaries were like, you're an idiot only birds mm. can fly. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like some slave was like, one day a black person could be president of this nation. You know what I'm saying? Uh, like, it's like, mm -hmm. like these things were just, it's impossible. Somebody was like, maybe the earth isn't flat mm -hmm. <laughs> and they got stoned for it, you know? And they so, did. yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm like, got canceled. So, so, um, so, uh, here comes this dreamer. It intentionally sounds like, oh, look, isn't that beautiful? This book of poetry and you're a dreamer. But it actually comes from a story in the Bible about a, a guy who had these dreams of his future. And in his future, he had accomplished great things. Um, but his brothers heard the dreams and they were jealous of him for a lot of reasons, but specifically because of his dreams. And so his brothers decide to betray him and they literally like sell him into slavery. But as he's walking out to them the day that they decide to betray him, they say, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw his body into a pit. And I just thought it was so fascinating that they, they didn't like him for so many reasons, but the thing they stated when they said, you know what, we've had enough, was they said, here comes this dreamer. That's why they were mad, because he was a dreamer. And, and I think as much as we act like we appreciate artists and dreamers, what do we do? We do that to them. Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. I have a dream. Come now, let us kill him. And that's exactly what they did. Why? Because people who are dreaming, people who are envisioning a different world, they become a threat to whoever is in power in the current world. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're dreaming of something different and better and more just and more fair, the people who are benefiting from the injustice don't like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm doing well. You want to reorder the world. I might not be as powerful. I'm going to kill you, mm -hmm. you know. And mm -hmm. so that's what it is. So it's like, oh, here comes this dreamer. It sounds so pretty. Then you get to the poem in context and you're like, oh, come now, let us kill him. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's what happens. You put a target mm -hmm. on your back when you when you dare to challenge the status quo of any of anything, of, of a nation, of a culture, of art, you know, um, mm -hmm. just even within like not even on the grand scale. But, like you know, I mean especially black folks in America, like every art form, every music genre we invented at some point was believed to not be music. You know, mm -hmm. people hear, oh, jazz, what are they doing? That's just, it does just a bunch of noise. You know, oh, hip hop, they're, they're, what are they doing? They're not singing. They're just, well, this isn't music. And, you know, and jazz, hip hop, blues, everything. It was seen as unintelligent music. It was seen as nonsense music. And then now it's like embraced and celebrated all around the world, right? Um, yeah, I mean, so, even music even music, the way we get our theory mm -hmm. is based upon 
200 years ago or four, three or 400 years ago, uh, white dudes, honestly, who have created this scale. And if you look around the world, there are like, uh, I don't know, 17 different scales. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, this one, we've kind of tried to dominate it with that scale. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah. Mm. So that's a long-winded answer about what my book is about, but <laughs> that's what it is. Love that. Yeah. No, I love that. I, I don't know that I have a question for you, but I love that in light of to the last section being called prophecy, because mm -hmm. it feels like what you just named is that you know, you're a prophet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those people who have come before you are prophets pointing to a different world that's possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I used to shy away from that term because, mm. you know, in my head it was like spooky or like, let me tell you your future. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, nah, I'm not that. But then once I really started to understand um, growing up in a Christian tradition, but even in other other faith traditions, like people who are called prophets, they're not just up here. They're not fortune tellers. You know, yeah. they are they are dreamers. They are creatives. They're the through theater and art mm -hmm. and music, they are challenging their culture. They are envisioning something better. And when I think about it like that, I'm like, yeah, I think that's what I do, you know? Um, but, totally. uh, I, but I hated it. I never was like, I'm a prophet. It actually, as I started creating and doing shows, people would come up to me afterwards and they're like, man, you're a prophet. And I'm like, calm down. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, <laughs> I ain't Ms. Cleo, you know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to take your money, you know, and tell you your future or nothing like that. But, um, but no, I really, I really do embrace it in my understanding of, of what being prophetic is now. Yeah. Totally. I mean, you just described like, the quintessential prophet in the Bible is Moses and Moses isn't a future teller. Yeah. He's the person who challenges the power structures of Egypt and leads the people of Israel who are oppressed under an unjust reign into a new world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. the Reverend speaks, Johnny, I'd love you just, you know, the Bible back and forth. I think it's awesome. Someone like, yeah, he was, yeah, he wasn't the prophet. He like challenged the system. Well, I don't know, but I, Micah knows it just as well. Cause I was, I had not connected in my head. Here uh -huh. comes the dreamer to the story of Joseph. Yeah. And so I felt like really challenged, even as you were just talking about yeah. that. It's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful like retelling of that story in yeah. a way that's really challenging. And yeah, it took, um, the entire book, you know, I have to admit, I wanted to read it from cover to cover in about two hours. Mm -hmm. And I started going through them. And as I found myself starting to read faster and not digesting them, mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute, hold on. And I just kind of would sit with these poems for yeah. um, several days. <clears throat> and I really liked that. It took to the very end of, of the book for me to uh, see the, the poem about Here Comes This Dreamer. I, I typically don't go to the last poem and read it or the last yeah. page first. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, a couple that really stuck to my mind, Micah, Nightmares is one of my favorite section. I really also appreciated a poem called Manna, where your mom mm -hmm. takes you to McDonald's mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. playground. Mm -hmm. And I really resonated with that because as a kid, I really wanted to go there and we couldn't go there unless it was on special occasions. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't grow up wealthy, but I didn't, I, you know, I would say poor for my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't get to go to McDonald's very often. Um, I loved Drake Park Revival. Mm -hmm. um, I loved one of the last poems in, I think the section prophecies is called Almost Love. I guess when you say you wrote it um, for black kids with black dreams, um, maybe we can take that apart a little bit is if that's who it's written for, you know, I, I, re I read it. Why would, why would white people read it? Or why would I want to read it? Why would the world want to read this book? And, and do, do you even care if, if they do? Anybody who has interest in reading it, like, sure, that's great. Um, I think for me, it was important to shift my imagined audience. I don't actually know mm. who's going to read it, right? Maybe 
more white people than black people read it. But who I'm talking to is different in the poems, right? I'm mm-hmm. talking to myself. I'm talking to my community. And so mm-hmm. white folks are welcome to listen in, but they are not centered, right? A lot of my older work, mm-hmm. it was, let me explain this to you, white person, white people. Let me explain what it feels like to... And now it's more like, let me... um connect with folks who have shared experiences. And so, hey, let's grieve together. Let me assume you understand how I'm feeling and let me just like unleash, Mm. you know, um, or let me vent to someone who is familiar, right? Um, Or let me celebrate our our beautiful Mm. shared culture. Um, Mm. Why would white people read? I don't know. Why do white people listen to hip hop? You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> most, good. most hip hop is not talking to white people. It's mm. by black people mm. talking to black people. And white people love that mug. I mean, I think it's dope. That's why I think white people would want to read it. But I'm not talking to them in this, you know, mm-hmm. like it, which doesn't mean that they aren't referenced, you know, that they can't benefit from it. But they're not my primary mm. audience. Um, And they were for a long time. I didn't even realize that it, it was only because I was speaking to where I was at. I went to a predominantly white school. And after college, I lived in Central Oregon. And uh, yeah, I spent so many years performing in these communities talking about my people but and on behalf of my people but mm-hmm. I wasn't talking mm-hmm. to my people I wasn't mm-hmm. checking in about man with everything that's been going on you know and it's not just this year this has been happening over and over again man what toll is this taking on our mental physical spiritual health you know um man like I've been giving my gifts to really the community that has been oppressing me, which I don't regret. I believe in loving my enemies, but I also want to take some time and some years to intentionally invest the things I'm gifted with to bless the black community and to bring healing and hope and inspiration um, and challenge to my own community the way I had been doing it in white communities. So Mm -hmm. um, it's not just with this book, it's with a lot of things I'm doing now. I'm working on an album and it's like that same idea, like my next rap album, I'm intentionally talking to uh, young black males. I'm addressing the issue of masculinity, but I'm thinking again, what did my 16 year old self think Mm -hmm. it meant to be a man? And what do other black kids from the inner city, you know, what do they need Mm -hmm. to hear? What do I wish, like knowing what I know now, what do I wish I would have heard when I was 16, right? Trying to figure out how to be a black man in America. So um, that's just different. It's it's a different when I when I have that as my intended audience, um, I write different things, and and that's what this book is about. Yeah, I think that's really powerful, and I and I think that like even the decentering of whiteness feels important as a challenge to all of us who would read your book mm-hmm. and have our and have our own identity decentered. Because I think mm-hmm. even in what you named about education earlier, and how that centers a certain kind of mm-hmm. identity. Like so often white people just we center ourselves and normalize it. Mm-hmm. I think of actually some poems I've heard you do about normal culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Normal hair. And yeah, think, yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. one of the ones I remember from you yeah. doing. It feels like so yeah, so consistently we we center ourselves. So even to engage in literature that challenges the way in which we center ourselves as the chiefs of this like story that's unfolding when yeah. that's just not the reality. Yeah. Absolutely. Never at ease, I don't know a limit Chasing a dream, I don't know what sleepers I got a queen, she lit me the evening She ripe like a peach and she snapped me the snip Say it nice and I give it to you You know my word is bond, yeah 
What we on now is wild shit trip Life is lit, take a breath, chime in That was Word is Bond by Tilden Park. You know, it's funny. It, it seems like as an artist, artists are always trying to be defined by definition, make their sound, make their uh, name and kind of refine themselves. And what I see in you is um, someone who is good at so many things. And I really appreciate the, you know, like you're like, hey, I want to do an album. I'm going to do this. I want to write a book. I'm going to do this because I think it's the hardest part to finish a project that last 10%, you know, there's a lot of us, yeah. um, myself included, who have, you know, written a ton of songs and I'm just about to release a single on October 6th, finally in 20 years. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. I'm the guy <laughs> that, awesome. I'm the guy that plays with the bands, records in the studio, yes. does those anthology types, you know, where it's just like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. but finally my own name, my own hit, meaning, you know, it's a hit to me, um, it's yeah. coming out. So I appreciate the idea of, mm someone just completing a project and, and seeing the vision enough to, to see it through. Yeah. You know, I feel like, um, a lot of artists, oh man, I'm trying to not go off on so many rants. Um, <laughs> go off. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know what? Okay. I'm gonna go off. I'm just, I'm gonna do I'm at go least off. one. But, um, I'll, yeah, I'll do at least one. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tie it back to, to the book. Um, uh, if you, I don't know if y'all have it handy, but there's a poem called Lament from Mother Tubman. Oh, yeah. You know, a few years ago when Obama was still president, there was an announcement made that um, Harriet Tubman was going to replace Andrew Jackson on the face of the $20 bill. Andrew Jackson, notoriously racist, et cetera. And everybody was excited. Black folks were so excited. And I remember getting on Facebook and like my friends being like, man, I can't wait to go to the bank and be like, let me get 300, all Tubmans, please. You know, and uh, (laughs) I thought that was really funny. But I I was when I heard the news, it felt bittersweet to me. Hmm. And I thought to myself, this just doesn't feel right. And I couldn't quite figure out why. Why wasn't I happy about it until I came across this article about the city of Boston? And I quote this article um, in the beginning of this poem. And basically, in the article, there was a study done. It was called The Color of Wealth in Boston. And they were looking at the net worth of different ethnic demographics in the Boston region, like the city and the surrounding suburbs. And the median net worth for black families in the Boston region was $8. The median net worth for white families in the same region was $247,500. And so when people say, oh, you know, you're stuck on the past and you know, nobody, you're not a slave anymore and nobody's telling you you're not allowed to eat here and all this stuff. And like, just get over it. And yes, it's not perfect, but it's not as bad as you. I'm not mad about the past, right? I think it's important to acknowledge it. But this study was from 2015, I believe. $8. Mm. $8 versus 247500 Are you telling me that you really believe that all those black families in the Boston region are just that much lazier than all those white families? No. Mm. You know, you are confronted with this is the fruit of American capitalism. Slavery was driven not by racial hatred. It was driven by greed. 
Mm-hmm. And racial hatred was attached to it because they were like, how can we make the most money, you know, <laughs> well, by enslaving people, free labor, we'll get richer. And it worked. And how do we justify free labor and slavery? Well, we'll say black people aren't human, you know, and so then we can, because if they're human, then we're confronted. And so I see so many things going back to greed. And, and um, so when you're talking about here, 2015, you know, that this study is done and black people's net worth per family per household is $8 versus white people's 247,500 then there is something that is intentional that it's built into the structure of our economy that is evil that is unfair that is unjust right and so i look at it and i'm like i don't just because there's a few black millionaires who make it we're looking at the median and that's just the city of boston but that's similar you go to any major city and you go to the poor side of town guess where you're going you go to the black side of town mm-hmm. and it's not because black people are lazy and it's not because black people are unintelligent and it's not because white people just worked harder that's not what happened that's impossible right and so to take it back to what i was saying about artists you know, it's this tension, especially if you're an artist who wants to create work that talks about justice and all these things. It's one of those things where I want to challenge society through the things I create. But at the same time, I want to be celebrated and paid by mm-hmm. the structure that I'm critiquing. It's weird. <laughs> I wanted to ask you uh, one more last question and and, uh, and then we usually do kind of some last words, but yeah. I would love it. I love when you read poems. I don't know mm-hmm. if you would uh, maybe read your favorite one or recite one of your favorite poems for us on the show, give people a taste of some of the work that's in this book. Let me see. And you don't have to read a favorite of mine. I mean, yeah. you don't. <laughs> I, I mean, did, which were some of your favorites? I might pick from one because I'm just like, uh, yeah. Tenderheaded was good. That was, I think that was my favorite. Oh, cool. Tenderheaded, yeah. No, I love the one about uh, Shakespeare. I thought that was super awesome. I can't remember what the, it's called. Nah, it's all good. Native tongue. I loved. All- yeah, no. Um, all right, cool. Yeah, I, I think I know native tongue, so that'll be easy. I'll just do that one. Um, but before you do that, where can we find all of your stuff? So all of my albums are actually free downloads. I mean, you can stream them all the services too, but if you go to micahbornet.bandcamp.com, um, I got my blues albums, my spoken word albums, my hip hop albums, um, and uh, yeah, and a couple singles from my newer stuff. So those are all there. Um, if you like the work and you want to support, uh, you know, things are really hard right now for touring artists because we can't do shows, concerts, conferences, nothing like that. So uh, I have a Patreon account, uh, patreon.com slash Micah Bournet. If you sign up for $10 a month or more, you get early access. You'll hear all of my albums in full before they're out in the public. Um, Like my book is out now, but the manuscript for my book was on my Patreon like six months before it was even out. So uh, you get really cool behind the scenes, early access stuff. Um, I mean, you can give however much you want, but that level is $10. Um, If you do the $5 level every month, I do a playlist of independent and artists that I like and poets and musicians. So uh, it's pretty cool. So that's a practical way to support me. Follow me on Instagram at Micah Bournet, Facebook. I'm on all the social medias, but Instagram is my favorite drug of choice. Uh, And uh, yeah, man, I mean, I've I've enjoyed myself. Uh, I mean, I talk a lot, so I just (laughs) like hearing myself talk. No, no, it's all good. I think that everyone needs to know 
where to purchase and hear some of your stuff. All right, everyone, here is Native Tongue from his latest book release, Here Comes This Dreamer, Micah Borne. <clears throat> According to ShakespeareOnline.com, the English language owes a great debt to Shakespeare. He invented over 1,700 of our common words by changing nouns into verbs, changing verbs into adjectives, connecting words never before used together, adding prefixes and suffixes, and devising words wholly original. If I could, I'd spit this in whatever mother tongue was ripped from our mother's lips. But the closest I got to that is hip-hop, is black talk, is improper, non-proper, unproper, uneducated, un-educated, un-scratch-assimilated me talk, we talk, our talk, make y'all wish y'all nom tombow talk, make y'all ask your black friend talk, make y'all run to urbandictionary.com talk, that one thing, that something that belongs to us, that us you try to demonize. Envy, copy, despise, that us you try to categorize, stereotype, try to shame our broken English you wish you could understand, but you can't never get it because we stay fly, we stay fresh, we stay change, we stay everyday new way to say we never believed your lies, we never spoke your tongue, we been in educated, uneducated, un-educated, un-scratch assimilated, and if you ever want to know what we talking about, maybe you need to unlearn a thing or two. Who says our vernacular ain't classical? Who says rap lyricists are anything less than Shakespearean? Shakespeare, a man who turned nouns into verbs and invented 1,700 words. That's funny. When we break the rules, we're called ignorant. When we invent words, they're called slang. The way we talk is improper, non-proper, unproper, uneducated, un-educated, un-scratch, assimilated. We ain't never been dumb. We break English like chains. This is our native tongue. Yeah. So good. Wow. Hmm. Well, that ends our episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Thank you, Mike, for joining us. Don't forget to pick up his book, Here Comes This Dreamer, on Amazon and all other stores where books are sold. It's micabornay.com. It's spelled M-I-C-A-B-O-U-R. <laughs> oh. and I ain't the mess with the birthday. It's all good. M I C A H B O U R N E S dot com. M I C H B O U R N E S dot com. This brother can't get it right. <laughs> oh. We're gonna for sure put that in the description link right there. M I C A H B O U R N E S dot com. I can get it at some point. Hey, check out our Instagram, Smart Guy Dumb Guy, to find quotes from the show and to engage with us during the week. Smart Guy Dumb Guy, all lowercase. Subscribe to the podcast here or come back again next week if you like our conversations. But like always, please have your own. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.